Good morning, everybody. Who's glad they came this morning? It's been awesome so far. Hey, amen. Great Sunday. So um, yesterday during the book game, I unfortunately wasn't able to see it. I was telling Simon I was at a conference, conference with Pastor Savira doing prophetic ministry there. But half, there was this moment in the conference where there suddenly the shout went up. <laughs> And so we realized people were listening to the game or keeping eyes on the game. So we knew we'd won, and it was really awesome. But I must admit, I, I was thinking in the morning, am I going to have to rewrite my sermon depending on the outcome of the game? But uh, luckily this morning, we all have a great example of a victory and what it feels like when we experience a victory. And we're going to continue with our Ephesians season series and uh, you'll see how this fits in because today we're talking about the image of the church as an army in Ephesians. And so won't you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to start reading from verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And for those who watched the game yesterday, I'm sure you saw a battle unfold in front of you, didn't you? And so what this scripture is telling us is that the battle is real. Whether you care for it or not, whether you want to be in it or not, you are in a battle. And the, the unfortunate news is that for the rest of your life, if you are a Christian on this planet, you will be in a battle. And no matter how victorious you are, you will continually have to fight with the weapons of our warfare that God has given us. In verse 13, Paul says again, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The evil day is every moment of our lives. <laughs> it's not just an event coming at the end of time. Can anybody testify to an evil day just recently? <laughs> and the reason every moment of our life is the evil day is because the enemy wants to ensnare us in his lies. He wants to get a hold of our heart and our mind and trap us in thinking something other than the truth of God. But Paul encourages us and he says, in that evil day, in that moment of your life, you stand firm. You hold on. Who is our enemy? Well, Ephesians 6 verse 12 tells us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is not the British. <laughs> our enemy is not our unsaved boss or that crazy person at work who just makes it unbearable to be there. 
Our enemy is not strangers on the street. Our enemy is powers and principalities. Do you know where our real enemy is? Is inside here. It's in our own thinking and our own understanding. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, he says to them at the beginning of this verse, he says, you are like your father, the devil. And then he explains to us who the devil is, how the devil is. In verse 44, he says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And this is the issue. This is the power the enemy has over us today is that he can whisper lies to us. What I've learned in my life is that the lies he whisper are already the lies I'm telling myself, are already the lies that I've, I've learned in my life because who knows that this life can be full of suffering. It can be full of abuse and trauma and disappointment. And if we will leave those things untouched by God, they speak lies to us. And the power of the enemy is that he begins to notice, ah, she keeps saying that to herself. He keeps believing that about God. And then he comes alongside us and he just keeps whispering it to us over and over. And so our enemy is real. And yes, he's powerful. And he is waging war against us right now. But three things we have to remember about our enemy that are very important. First and foremost, our enemy is not equal to our God. Satan is a fallen angel. He is a created being. He rebelled against God and he was cast out of heaven by God. Who is more powerful? Okay, some of you aren't sure. <laughs> Simon knows. <laughs> This is really important to understand. Somewhere in our, in our religious thinking, we see good and evil as these two equal opposing forces that are battling and striking. No, 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 no. God created Satan. Who is the greater, the creator or the created? Now you're getting it. And this is very important to understand. In fact, um, in the, in the book of Revelation, when we see Satan finally vanquished, do you know that it's not even God who does it? It's a nameless angel. Revelation 20, verse 1 to 3 says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it up and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Do you see the power of God? Do you see the impotence of Satan? Are you seeing that? God doesn't even bother with him a second time. He just says, hey, you. <laughs> we don't know the angel's name. It's not even Gabriel or Michael or one of the archangels. It's just this angel. And God's power vanquishes Satan. And we have to know that this is true because whatever problem we are facing, I wanna say this to you, the easiest part of any problem is a demon to deal with because we have authority in Jesus Christ because of this very thing right here. In most of our emotional problems, in most of the things we're facing, there might be some demonic activity. It is the least of the problems. The biggest problem is our thinking, is our faulty belief system. 
I have learned in my life that the biggest thing Satan does to me is bring fear. My first prophetic experiences, I, I didn't see it, but now I understand there was a demon that would stand because it knew I could sense it. <laughs> it was just opportunistic. I think it was just passing through one night and suddenly realized, oh, this young kid can, can sense me. I never saw it. It never did anything. But I was terrified as a child to the point where I used to sleep at the bottom of my parents' bed. They didn't know what to do with me. But here's what God stuck it to the devil with, because I was so scared I would spend the whole night reading my Bible. As a nine-year-old child, I read the Bible cover to cover, over and over. So I'm very susceptible to fear, and I want to tell you this, the issue of demonic activity in our lives is agreement. And fear is the biggest agreement I can make with the enemy. Because once I'm afraid, he doesn't need to do anything more. I get this picture in my life of spaces where I've been so fearful and so acting out of fear. And in the corner, there's the demon sharpening his claws, texting his friends. Because I'm doing his job for him. I agreed and now I'm trapped. And so, yes, the enemy has power. He definitely has more power than you and I, but he does not have more power than God. And in God, you and I have more authority than he will ever have. And this is so important for us to understand. If there's a problem in your life, rebuke the enemy and he has to flee. If the problem doesn't go away, it's because we need to fix something here. So start there, rebuke that enemy. If it gets better, then go on. If it doesn't, you better start doing what I'm about to teach you to do now. So the first thing is, is that our enemy is not equal to our God. Are you getting that? Say that to your neighbor. Fantastic. Never forget that. The second thing we have to remember is that we fight from a place of victory. It's kind of weird, but it's absolutely true. Why? Because Colossians 2 verse 15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So earlier we read that our enemy is the powers and principalities, the rulers and principalities of the air. Didn't we read that? Now what does it say in Colossians 2.15? What did he do? He disarmed the rulers and principalities. What does disarmed mean? Took away their weapons took away their power. And so we fight today from a place of victory. Jesus has already triumphed. Satan is defeated. When we sing that song, you gotta believe it. <laughs> you don't sing that song and then go home and agree with fear. I've done that too much in my life. The consequences are not good. If you want long, sad stories, take them out for coffee. I'll tell them to you. The other thing about this whole issue of the fighting for victory is we make the mistake of thinking that Satan is the king of hell. Do you understand that hell is Satan's punishment and prison? There's no kingdom there. It's his just deserts. He is already living in his punishment and his defeat. So we fight from a place of victory. And then the last point we have to remember in this battle is that we have been armored and we have been weaponized. God has equipped us and trained us for the battle. Not only that, but we are not defenseless and we are not alone. God himself is our commander in chief. He is Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, 
over armies gathered for battle. We are not alone. Not only are we not alone, but he has given us armor and weapons to fight this battle, and we win. And so the first thing I want to say about the armor of God is that it's God's armor. Now, I grew up Baptist, and I think Ephesians 6 is such a beautiful picture for kids because it's got this beautiful analogy of the armor. But somewhere along the line, we start focusing more on shields and breastplates and helmets and shoes and, and swords and whatnot than we do on God's armor. The issue isn't the Roman armor. The issue is what is God's armor? And first and foremost, the thing about God's armor is that Paul tells us twice in verse 10 and in verse 13 that we have to put on the whole armor of God, not the bits we like, not the bits that are easy, the whole armor, okay? Um, But what is the armor of God? Well, I've listed God's armor, not the Roman armor. I've listed God's armor there, okay? Okay. Um, And so what is that? Well, it's a full understanding of who God is. All of those things actually relate to truth. You'll see in a moment. But so far in the book of Ephesians, we've looked at some images of the church. We've looked at the image of us as a family. So who is God? He is our Father. Pastor Sai did such a good job of talking to us about how we are adopted into the family of God. We belong fully and completely. Now, here's the problem with adoption. If you find out you're adopted, you've got to struggle with an idea of who am I? And the lies of the enemy are gonna come. But if your mom and dad have loved you and cared for you and sacrificed for you and made a way for you and, and given you opportunities, who are your parents? They are. Doesn't matter who else out there is roaming around with your genetics. You are fully and completely adopted. You have their name. You get their money. You have access to their fridge. That is your parent. Nothing nothing changes. You are a child, fully and completely in every sense of the word. God is our Father. This is the full armor of God. This is the whole armor of God. Secondly, Pastor Sevewe spoke to us about that image that we are a temple. We are the temple of God the congregation of the faithful. He is our God. You know, we we talk so, in our modern language, God, God, but in the Old Testament, your God was your identity and your power. When you ran into war and somebody else had a bigger God than you, you were messed. (laughs) Sorry, England. Um, It was done. And then you had to go home with your small God and be like, oh, well, This is us forever, because that other God was bigger. So when we say he is our God, are you understanding? He is our identity. He is our Father. He is our God, our all in all. The third picture we looked at last week, Pastor Rekha spoke to us about the fact that we are a bride. I might make the ugliest bride in the history of the universe, but I am still a bride, and I love that I am a bride to Jesus Christ. On the inside, I'm stunning. Um, But this, what does this make Jesus to us? Who is God to us? He is our friend and our lover. You don't want to marry somebody who is neither of those things to you or only one of those things to you. It's not going to go well. So he is our father. He is our God. He is our friend and our lover. 
And now we're talking about the army, which makes him our commander in chief. And this is the whole armor of God. So just to really bring the point home, Paul wrote the book of Ephesians um, during his first imprisonment in Rome. And so it's not hard to imagine that he was guarded by soldiers from the Roman army, okay? And so he became quite intimately aware of how they were dressed for battle. But the armor that he lists is a picture, it's an allegory. Do you know that the spiritual armor doesn't exist? You're all a bit stunned. Okay, what I mean is there aren't little helmets and shields and swords and shoes and breastplates in heaven that when you wake up every morning and go, dear Lord Jesus, I put, that angels arrive and put them on you. Okay, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, when I looked at the belt on the guard who was guarding me, I realized that it held all his armor in place, and that reminded me of truth. When I looked at his breastplate and I saw how, how strong it was to protect his heart and his vital organs from damage, it reminded me of God's righteousness. And that's why I'm not even going to talk about shields and helmets. I'm going to talk about truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word and spirit of God. I don't think it's wrong to pray in the morning putting on the armor of God, but there's no magic in it. I heard a story once where an old lady came to repent to her pastor. He was like, what's the problem? She was like, oh, it was actually an Afrikaans lady. She was like, Dwimini, I drove over Pitt's foot this morning. And he's, he's in hospital. Oh, I'm so sorry, he says. She said, I feel so bad. He said, well, you know, these things happen. She said, no, pastor. I forgot to pray the armor over myself this morning. And that's why that happened. That's not how we pray the armor of God. If you're going to pray for the armor of God, it means you better stand in truth. You better stand in righteousness. You better be embracing the gospel fully. You, you get the picture. So, the, so what Paul is talking about is an analogy. It's a picture. And so truth. So just as the belt of a Roman soldier held most of the rest of his armor in place, we have to be anchored in the truth of God. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 to 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now in all the scriptures I'm reading, you're gonna see those words, truth, righteousness, gospel, um, salvation, you're gonna see them come up because they're kind of actually all the same thing. Truth is the essence of everything God is. God doesn't speak truth, he is truth. And you've heard this analogy, but I'm gonna say it again. Because he is truth, whatever he says aligns with truth. So if God decided he was bored of a blue sky and he wanted a green one and he started speaking today and he said, let the sky be green, by the time he finished that sentence, all the science required to make the sky green would happen. We would all die <laughs> and the universe would be a much more chaotic place. But it would be green because he is truth. See, this is what happens in healing. There's cancer when we start. When God says, no more cancer, truth has to align. It's the same in your life. No longer children of the devil. No longer of the kingdom of darkness. See, we don't understand because it happens like this. Why? Because he is truth. This is also really important because when truth speaks to you, it's not a suggestion. It is what it is. Now, I'm not even, you all think I'm talking about commands. When Jesus says, I love you, 
You've only got one choice. You can believe it or not, but it is true. But this is where the problem becomes in, because if I choose not to believe it, I create a whole other reality for myself, because I'm not aligning with truth. When I choose to believe it, I step into everything he's got for me. And this is the battle in our brains, in our minds, in our hearts, all the time. He said he loves me, does he? Who said he loves you? Truth. And so truth is the anchor and the foundation of everything we are and believe as Christians. John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when we submit to and obey and stand on the truth of God's infallible world, it is like a belt that locks the rest of our Christian life and experience securely into who God is because he is truth. Righteousness. When we are anchored securely in truth, we understand fully that our righteousness before God is not in anything we can do or be, but rests fully in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So important. We like to work for things because then we feel like we deserve them. <laughs> we like to work for things because then we feel better than other people. We like to work for things because then we feel like nobody can take it away from us. That's the biggest lie of this world, isn't it? But 1 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is nothing you can do. You and I will never, ever be good enough. So I used to do an exercise whenever I spoke about this, Christian, and I'm not going to make you do it because everybody hates it, but you're going to see the point I'm trying to make. I would say, turn to your neighbor, look at them, and say, you're not good enough. And everybody would go, oh! which is quite right. However, how many times a day do you tell yourself you're not good enough? You won't say it next to the person next to you, but you say it to yourself all the time. Do you know what we call that? Hypocrisy. <laughs> so the shock and horror you would feel if I said to you right now, turn to your neighbor and tell them you're not good enough, you better start applying that to your own life. Okay, so let me help you. You're not good enough. He has, the, he has the truth. This is what truth says. I don't care. He has Jesus Christ, my son. He's good enough. Yeah. I want you. Yeah. I want you. So you better come stand here in him. Do, do you get what I'm saying? And so righteousness protects our hearts. It protects our souls. It protects us like a breastplate because it keeps us from believing the lies of the enemy that we have to work for salvation that we have to work for God's approval. I was talking to a 19-year-old in Canada when I was on sabbatical recently, passionate for God, so excited, and we were talking and talking, and he was asking me questions, and I was sort of starting to disciple him, taking him through foundations. And suddenly he said to me, you know, I, does God really love me? I said, yes. And then just out of the blue, because this is a revelation I'm starting to receive, I said, you know, God doesn't just like you, I mean love you, he likes you. He didn't know what to do with that. He had to go away and think about it for a couple of hours. And then he came back and said, but surely, God, but I... <laughs> and I was kind of like, well, do you make things you don't like? I mean, the real point is, do you keep things you don't like? I mean, you might make some things and go, oh, that's horrible, and throw it away. 
but you don't keep things you don't like. And so this is how deep God is. God doesn't just love you, he likes you. And so when we believe the truth that we don't have to work, our souls get protected. So when the enemy comes and says, you're ugly, you're fat, you're stupid, you don't have what it takes, you're dumb, you embarrass yourself, nobody likes you, we put that righteousness up and we say, no, you're a liar. And I'm not gonna believe that anymore. The breastplate, this righteousness also protects us from pride and arrogance because we know it's got nothing to do with us. So let's get over our religious selves. The point of, of, of Christianity is relationship with Jesus Christ. Relationships should be good. It doesn't mean they're not going to be difficult and hard, but they really should be good. If all you do in your relationship is cry and hide under a bed, you better get out of that relationship fast. It's not good. But that's how we are with God, isn't it? The point of a relationship with God is that we enjoy Him and He enjoys us. And even when it's difficult, we push through. Why? Because we know how much He loves us. And so it keeps us from arrogance and pride. And lastly, it protects us from condemnation and guilt. <laughs> because it's not about me. And those are the two places we go. Either we're super arrogant or we're super guilty the whole time. Both of those just keep us out of relationships. And if we will embrace the fact that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, we will be neither arrogant nor condemned. So let's push into that. Thirdly, the gospel. So when I realize that I am sinning and that I need a savior, the gospel tells me who to run to. The gospel proves to me there is a savior and no matter how big my sin is, he's a million times bigger in his love and forgiveness. Romans 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Because I am submitted to truth and I know that I am the righteousness of God in Christ, I am absolutely convinced that the gospel works and that it has power to transform me and everyone I encounter. This makes me swift to share the gospel, to witness to the power of Jesus Christ to save and deliver. Does the gospel work? <laughs> Let's try that again. Does the gospel work? It works in me first. You see, sometimes some of us are a little unsure because of everything I've spoken about up to now. But the gospel works. And that means if, some, if something works, you would be really mean and selfish to only keep it to yourself and never share it with anybody else. Faith, Hebrews 11 verse one says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. And in Paul's illustration, he says that faith is like a shield and we douse the fiery darts that the enemy sends against us with our faith. So I've seen in my life, the most consistent way the enemy fires fiery darts at me is by telling me that God is not good, that he doesn't love me, and that he doesn't want to work with me. He's not going to help me. Honestly, this is what I deal with the most. And I think for most of us, that's it, you know? Each of us have our own unique stuff. But because I know that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, I have learned that my situation and my circumstance cannot dictate who God is to me. Because 
the, the way the enemy lies to me is through my situations and circumstances. He does it through two ways. Either there's something in my life I really don't want there, and I'm suffering for it, or I feel like there's something in my life that really should be there, and I feel like I'm suffering for it. And both of those then lie to me and say, yeah, you see, it's yeah, because yeah, God, isn't, God doesn't love you that much, because you deserve to be punished, yeah. Or it's not yeah, because, well, exactly the same thing. You don't deserve it, you're not good enough, and you never will be. But I know that faith is the evidence of things hoped for. And so whatever is in my life that needs to be out of it, whatever isn't in my life that needs to be in it, that's the point of faith. My situation doesn't dictate who God is to me. My faith dictates to me who God is. And I dictate that to the situation. I do, however, believe, and this is something I feel like I've learned in my 31 years of being a Christian this year, is that I think the greatest power and point of faith is to know God. You know, if you look at Abraham's life, that is what God, it just is, it was accredited to him as faith that he believed. That was it. What did he believe? That this voice that was talking to him was God. That this voice was actually for his good and for his benefit. You see, we use faith so much to get an outcome. We practice faith just to get something. That wife, those pair of shoes, that car. Yes, and it kind of all does fall into the same category. That promotion, whatever it is. And I, guys, there's nothing wrong with that. Pray for good things to come to your life. But real faith is to access God in the moment. And if you look at Abraham's life, that's why he stood firm. Because continually he was told, you'll be the father of nations. And nothing happened. We see him giving Sarah happily away to Pharaoh as his um, concubine <laughs> because he was also messed up like we are. <laughs> but then he realizes this isn't God's will. In this situation, actually, my safety isn't the point. Finding God here is the point, and living righteously is the point. And so faith, bef before we start just going for the outcome, let's find God in the middle of what's happening right now. Psalm 23 verse 4 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Can we have a bigger and more effective shield to lies than the knowledge that God is with us? Right now, right here, no matter what I am facing. If I was walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I would be terrified. I would be climbing walls to get out of there. But the psalmist is saying, because you are with me, I will fear not. This is faith. Not to just get out of the problem, but to walk with him through it. Do you want to know God as a provider? Then you better walk through some lack. You want to know God as a healer? You're going to have to walk through some sickness. Do you, do you get where I'm going with this? Do you know, want to know who God is the one who takes away your fear and gives you courage? Who prayed for courage this week? Well, guess what? <laughs> but this is the power of faith, the shield that pushes back the lies of the enemy and won't let them land in our hearts and our minds. 
Salvations, Romans 12, verse 1 to, do, to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I believe that these scripture verses are giving us the picture of what true salvation looks like. When we are saved like this, these are the consequences of salvation, that we no longer conform to the patterns of this world because we are fully submitted um, like a living sacrifice to the truth of God, that we are transformed in our thinking so that we can test every thought and discern God's good, acceptable, and perfect will and align all our decisions to that perfect will. Should I do this or should I, what would God do? What does God think? pushing lies out and standing on truth. And that's how salvation is like a helmet because it protects our thinking. It protects our thoughts. The biggest battlefield is protected by our salvation. Are you pushing into your salvation? Are you standing in the full consequence of what Jesus Christ has done for you? Are you believing every word he says is true? Are you believing that his will and his purpose for you is only good, that it's perfect? And then lastly, the Word and the Spirit. And they're kind of the same thing. John 6 verse 63 says, this is Jesus speaking, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. We've already read 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's the Ruach of God. Scripture is by the Holy Spirit. So the word of God shows us the lies of the enemy and reveals the truth of how, who God is to us. You know, I make notes in version. There's a little note function there. Every time I read the Bible, I try and do that. When I read back through those notes, I realize 90% of the time what they are is something in that scripture has convicted me and I'm talking to God about my heart. I've only been doing that for the last two years. Imagine what my life would have looked like if I'd been paying more attention. I mean, I kind of was, but now I know I've got the notes to prove it. And what I've realized is that's reading the Bible. When it reads me back, <laughs> it's the living word of God. It's the only book in history that knows you're there. <laughs> and it reads you back. And I don't think I have truly read the Bible if it doesn't read me back. But that's also the Holy Spirit convicting us. Why? Because he is the spirit of truth and he leads us into all truth. John 16 verse 13 when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And do you know that this is the only offensive weapon we have? Everything else we've spoken about is defensive. And actually, in sport, the, having a strong defense is way better than having a strong offense. It's kind of the same in war. The more strong you are at defending, the less battle you will actually have to do. And so God isn't being cruel, but the one weapon he's given us is the most powerful of all because it's he himself. It's the words he speaks that are full of life and truth at the same time. And so we need to learn how to use that sword in our own brains first, to our own thinking, to our own attitudes. <laughs> yeah. We need to learn to hurt ourselves a little bit so that glory can come forth. 
And then lastly, famously, I mean, there's all different kinds of Roman armor, but apparently the type that Paul is describing, they didn't have any back piece, so there was nothing to protect your back. And there are many pictures we can draw that from that. But the real reason is because I've got your back, because you've got my back, because you've got each other's back. You see, all the images God speaks to us from, from Ephesians, we haven't even spoken about the body of Christ yet, are about community. And this is something we also have to understand. God deals with us as individuals. Of course he does. But he deals with us as a community. Church is church. <laughs> it's not this building. It's all of you. But we don't have church till we come together. Church is specific and distinct, and it's needed. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, not the head of you on your couch watching awesome God TV. Those things are great. Do it. But you better be coming to church because this is the church. And we all, who needs their back covered? I know I do. Thank you, Sai. Thank you, you. You guys cover my back. I know you pray for us as leaders, and I'm so grateful for that because you're covering our back, and we need each other. Get into the life of the church. Get faithful to come to church as much as you can. Pick a service and come every week. Get into connect group. Get into prayer meetings. Do the stuff that we do that helps us keep each other's back safe and sound. And so, next time you pray to put on the armor of God, (laughs) I hope that you're realizing you're actually investigating your own soul about how good am I with truth and righteousness, and salvation, and and the gospel, and faith, and the Holy Spirit, and the word. How good am I with that? And if you you realize you're lacking something, get a Christian brother to pray for you. Get somebody to come cover your back. And remember, remember, our enemy is not equal to our God. He is way inferior. God bless you guys.